Welcome to Media Path. I'm Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Thank you for choosing Media Path for your podcasting entertainment today. We are touring you through some lovely TV selections, and our guest media guide is going to take you to a little house on a prairie that is now forever situated in your heart and on multiple streaming platforms. She is Allison Arngrim, a multi-talented comedian, actor, writer, performer, activist who stamped her unique brand on frontier bitchery as Nellie Olson, her book and <laughs> stage show, Confessions of a Prairie Bitch, will inform and delight you. And Allison will join us shortly. But first, Fritz, you've got some stuff to tell us. I do. I'm so happy to have information. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, at MediaPath, we like to update you on what's going on with us and our guests and celebrate all of our successes, of which you, the listener, are often a huge part. And this Mm -hmm. week, our listeners up north, in particular, thanks to you, we charted in Canada in the books category and Apple Podcasts again. A couple of weeks ago, we also hit number 21 on the top 100 books charts on Good Pods as well. We had some truly outstanding authors on the show, including last week's guest, Howard Fishman, whose book is about the undiscovered musical talent of Connie Converse. We also have an author on the show next week, Yale Professor Wes Davis, whose new book is called, I'm really looking forward to this too, Mm -hmm. American Journey, On the Road with Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and John Burroughs. And we're fortunate to have multi-talented guests on our show who list author just as one of their many accomplishments. Case in point this week's Alison Arngren. Her book is Confections of a Prairie Bitch, How I Survived Nellie Olson and Learned to Love Being Hated. We'll talk about her in just a few minutes. That is the greatest title. I know, I love it. And an update about a recent guest, global singing sensation of Woodstock performer Melanie, who had a wonderful chat with us on an episode on Media Path earlier this spring. She has a new album for purchase on compact disc as well as digitally. It's a rare, restored recording of Melanie during the 70s on a live radio show. It's called The Magic Bus. It's available at Melanie Safka. With, with no break in between, her last name is S A F K A Melanie Sofka dot Bandcamp dot com, and we'll have the direct link on our show notes uh, this week. So if you're listening right now, you can easily find it. Yes. All right, now I'm going to talk about what I watched this week. I have a new favorite show, and it's already been your sh- one of your loved shows. But yeah, now, it's- thanks for taking my recommendation. Well, I did several months later. Mm-hmm. It's Shrinking on Apple Plus. This is my new favorite show. Shrinking is a comedy and a drama. I don't know if they still call stuff a dramedy, but I guess that's what it is. The story starts with Jason Siegel as a grieving therapist who's lost his wife, and he starts breaking the rules of therapy by saying exactly what he thinks to his clients. There are three therapists that share the office, Jason Siegel, Jessica Williams, and Harrison Ford. They spend some time helping clients, but most of the time, they're just working out their own crap. The great (laughs) surprise in the show, Honest to God, is how funny Harrison Ford is. Dry and deadpan, and he's going through some really relatable issues to those of us of a certain age. He's really a great discovery. And there are other fun discoveries on the show, too. Jessica Williams, who plays a therapist in the office who is flat-out hysterical. She's an actress and a comedian who is the youngest correspondent on The Daily Show. Also, over-the-top gay lawyer played by Michael Urey, who made his bones on Ugly Betty. Every time he comes on the screen, you crack up. He's so funny and flamboyant. Then there's an obsessive and offbeat next-door neighbor lady played by Krista Miller, known for her work on The Drew Carey Show. Irritatingly hysterical is how this woman is. It's no surprise this show is a home run because it's written by Jason Siegel, Bill Lawrence, and Brett Goldstein. Jason is already famously funny as an actor, producer, and writer, known for Freaks and Geeks and How I Met Your Mother. Bill Lawrence was a writer and producer on Ted Lasso and Scrubs, two very funny shows. Scrubs was way ahead of its time. They should have let that sit for a while. Brett Goldstein is an actor and writer who got a Best Supporting Actor Emmy for his work on Ted Lasso. So, a star-studded production in front and in back of the camera. There are 10 episodes streaming now, and it has been picked up for another season. I just love this show. I'm laugh out loud hysterical. Laugh out loud. All by yourself. No one to impress. No. You will hear your own laughter. Mm. And did you realize that the next door neighbor lady's husband is Ted McGinley? I couldn't believe it. Who was on Happy Days. 
I know it. So it's just... And you can see the arc of history in his face because he really looks old, but he's funny. Oh, no, he doesn't. He looks handsome. He's he, just he's very, great. very funny. Very funny. Always been a funny guy. I'm going to review Working. Working is on Netflix, and it's the new documentary series from the Obamas. You remember the Obamas from when they were in the White House? They were like <laughs> a previous season of White House, like, and it came on before Trump. But yeah the Obamas, they have a, the new uh, company that they have is called Higher Ground Productions. In the studs Turkle tradition, working shows us what people do all day. And it then digs deeper into our hopes, fears, frustrations, and aspirations when it comes to our work. Working uses three companies to focus on four rungs of the career class ladder, beginning with service employees in home, healthcare, hospitality, and tech. We meet a care provider, a, a hotel housekeeper, and a food delivery driver. From there, we move up to middle management, then knowledge workers, and finally executives in the home care, hotel, and tech industries. At the hotel, we spend time with the lovely women who direct our calls within the hotel, and then we get to know the manager who organizes all the large events, and he liaisons with all the employees at every level of the hotel. And in the final episode, we're introduced to the chairman of an Indian conglomerate which owns the hospitality group. Barack Obama narrates and spends time with the folks he introduces us to along the way. He visits their homes, can you imagine, and, and their offices. He shops with them. My favorite moment comes when he's pushing a cart full of groceries and a baby through a Piggly Wiggly in Mississippi with a home health care worker who says to him, I have a question for you. She says this to President Obama. She says, are you at peace can you believe her? Like, this is my new hero, this woman. He tells her that he feels pretty good and that he's achieved most of the goals that he set out for himself, but that he worries about the next generation. What he's actively doing about that is he's creating programming that helps us better understand one another. I have read some online criticism that he needed to do more when he was in power to alleviate the problems faced by today's worker. Workers. So let's bear in mind that when Obama was elected president, he was a young man riding a rocket that was the superpower of his talent and charisma, and that a president cannot act unilaterally. We do have a House and a Senate. And in his case, they ran interference, attempting to make him a one-term president by punishing the American people. What he managed to accomplish is stunning. Barack Obama has always and will continue to put his life to work. And you know what? He only did uh, a couple of things during his presidency. He uh, saved the health care system mm -hmm. and insured 20 million extra people. He probably, because he was the first African-American president, reinstilled people's faith in democracy. People were weeping in that crowd in that park. I was In weeping. Grant Park. I'm telling you. Uh, I'm, never mind. I don't, I don't want to yeah, go there. But go. his first... Uh, uh, project with Netflix was American Factory, which mm. was really wonderful and mm -hmm. got an Oscar nomination. So he's doing some good work over there. He really is. And our guest is doing the same. She puts her life to work, and I'm so proud to have her on our show. Alison Arngrim is the New York Times bestselling author of Confessions of a Prairie Bitch, colon, How I Survived Nellie Olson and Learned to Love Being Hated. Alison spent her teen years on the set of Little House, carving out her place in television history as Nellie Olson at the age of 12. She continues to entertain and delight audiences through her many film, television, and stage appearances. Alison Arngrim is resilient, resourceful, and remarkable, and we are thrilled to welcome her to Media Path. Welcome, Allison. Yay. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And love your lunchboxes, especially the one on top there. Yeah, it's, that's a good one right there. Uh, your book is a smash with almost 3,000 five-star ratings on Amazon. Yeah. In it, you describe Nellie Olson. Now, this is like we have to, everyone has to just take into account. This is an iconic character that you created at the age of 12, which is. Well, yeah. Laura Ingalls Wilder, the real Laura Ingalls Wilder, was kind enough to basically take three of the girls who bothered her and make them into one character in her books. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, because there's not really an Ellie Olson. I know it's terrible. Um, but yeah, they handed me this and I was so amazed at how awful she was. And I took it and ran with it. Okay. And she got more awful. What can I tell you? Yeah, you <laughs> ran with it. You described Nellie as a horrible, wretched, scheming, evil, lying, manipulative, selfish brat whose narcissism and hostility towards others knows no bounds, a girl whom millions of people all over the world have grown to hate. But she was a girl I'd grown to love. And you really said something really interesting about that character. You said somehow you were able to survive being Nellie, who was a hated character on the show at your young age. And it's very odd being disdained as you walk around in public by people who hated you. 
it's it's very bizarre. It's, it's people holding me responsible for things I did <laughs> when I was twelve while pretending to be somebody else. Um, I mean, people to say, uh, did people get mad at you for things you did on the show? Did people used to come up to you? I'm like, still, I'm 61 years old. I still meet people who are, who are still mad. They're 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 like, I just what if it what if it just made me so mad? I'm like, okay, you, it's time to calm down. <laughs> uh, I, I I take it as a compliment. I have to take it as a compliment. I did something somewhere in that performance that struck an emotional nerve with people that they suspended all disbelief and are, are still mad at me. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that's good for some. You were the original uh, mean girl. You were at the launch of the whole concept. It's true. It's true. Well, you know, Laura and I rolling in the mud. I mean, sure, they did it on Dynasty. Linda Evans and Joan Collins <laughs> in the pond. Melissa Gilbert and I did it first, did it better, just saying. Yeah, no, <laughs> agreed. So tell us why and how you have weaponized Nellie for good, both personally and globally. It's true. Well, I was in a weird position. It's like, you know, you, you can't beat them, join them problem. It's like, okay, everyone has decided that this is how they feel about this. And it's not going away. And, you know, <laughs> we went, and it, it went to reruns and then it went on to cable. We didn't have cable when the thing started. And then there were the DVDs, the VHS and on and on. And I thought, okay, this is just never going away. So it's like, okay, how do we, what do we do with this? People seem to like hating her. She's kind of campy. There's an angle here. And people wanted it. And I thought, okay, I, this is what I need to do. And I found that I was able to raise incredible amounts of money for charities. I was able to raise awareness around issues like AIDS and child abuse because I, I could draw the attention. There would, what do you mean the woman who played Nellie Olson is going to speak? She's going to come here and speak on what? And I was like, <laughs> Perfect. And uh, it worked out really well. And I've been able to do a lot with it. And, and of course, personally, I know it sounds completely bonkers and Fritz will never believe me, but I really was shy when I was young. I swear. <laughs> I swear I was. Um, and being Nelly kind of scared people and gave me kind of a buffer so, <laughs> so that I didn't have to be afraid because they were terrified of me. Well, you, you, you brought it up and I want to talk about it because I think they are two of the high points of your life in service to mankind and in just becoming a three-dimensional person, which you have done, which is AIDS. You had a very close friend who was your co-star on Little House that passed away from AIDS, and that was your inciting incident that made you do all of your wonderful advocacy. And I mean, not just like some stars do, raising huge amounts of cash and making appearances. You did the ground-level work like answering phones and stuff yeah uh what happened was steve steve tracy who played percival on little house in the prairie he did my husband on the show and so he got very sick and he went public with his diagnosis he died in in fall of 1986 so he was public in early 86 about having aids and that wasn't something people were doing in 1986 just was not and so it was a very big deal and we we're very good friends and i was with him and trying to help him and he was doing pretty well his family stood by him he had friends he had people helping him and i saw there were so many people unlike Steve, whose families had abandoned them, who had no health insurance, who had nothing, who were dependent on these organizations like AIDS Project Los Angeles, AIDS Healthcare Foundation, Shanti, et cetera, to provide the most basic of services. So I went and volunteered for AIDS Project Los Angeles. And I was also getting all these phone calls because, hello, he was now famous in public. And I realized people really, in 1986, they were just frightened out of their wits. They knew mm. nothing about the virus. And I, I had people, professional news people, you know, calling me and asking me questions. And I said, don't, don't they have a number for this? Well, they, they do. It's the AIDS hotline. And I wound up taking the training and getting on the AIDS hotline. So then in daily life and in press life, if people ask me things, I could give them a proper answer and a proper referral. But I also went volunteering on the Southern California AIDS hotline and at the Speakers Bureau and at the Food Bank. I mean, you were you were lecturing services. doctors and nurses and people that treat AIDS patients with the basic <laughs> information, which is Oh, yeah. I went out to, to medical facilities. We went to prison. Uh, I went out to everything from, like, Home Depot to banks to businesses discussing AIDS in the workplace. Uh, schools, practically every school in L.A., private schools, public schools, and talking about, you know, not only how it's transmitted, but things like what to do if your friend has AIDS, how you can help them, how this is affecting the world, basic stuff like that. And I got called in everywhere and people wanted to know and they wanted someone who was properly trained. And, and then and then I started working at Tuesday's Child where um, we provided services to families with children 
uh, with HIV and AIDS. And that oh, was man. that was pretty hard to deal with, but they somebody had to do it. Somebody had to take care of these kids. You, so. you were born and raised in West Hollywood, California. And for yeah. those that aren't born, familiar... Born in New that, York, born in Queens, and shipped out to West Hollywood at age But there probably, <laughs> other than maybe the Bay Area, uh, there's no area that was ravaged by AIDS more than the predominantly gay area of West Hollywood. So it probably resonated with you even deeper than it might a lot of people. It did. It did. In the beginning, I even said, I said, it's, it's killing my babysitters. It's all, all these people I grew up with and knew. Absolutely. I was very much ensconced in the, the gay LGBTQ community growing up. I grew up in West Hollywood. I went to my first gay pride when I was eight. It was in Griffith Park back then. Um, so absolutely, it was hitting people I knew. It was hitting, the obviously, the film and television industry. It was hitting all of these people. And so I was losing a lot of people. And Steve was my first close friend. But I... I lost count of how many close friends and people I know who died. I lost count. Uh, so it was devastating to me and, and others in our community. Absolutely. And I at least felt I was doing something to help people help, you know, lessen the number of cases. I said, by getting out prevention information via the hotline and speakers bureau, as well as information to people whose families and friends might need care and getting this. And then I would go to other places like you know, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, might have a fundraiser and you know liz taylor and madonna weren't coming Cedar Rapids, <laughs> but they could have me and i could come to the aids walk in missouri or wherever and and raise money for these smaller or and a lot of people didn't realize that many of these organizations out in the country were doing an enormous amount of work because many people who lived in san francisco and new york and la back in the day when they got sick they went home they went home right. and somebody had to take care of those people yeah. back mm -hmm. in Kansas and Iowa and everywhere. Yeah, that's what happened to me. I had friends that went home, you know, and it was before the internet. It was before email. It was before, you know, it just still hurts, you know, that you feel like you didn't, uh, you know, you didn't call often enough. You didn't write often enough because the next thing you knew, you're, you know, you're Googling them and you're, and you're reading the, their old bit. Once you could Google, you're like, okay, what happened to Alex? And then, you know, you're ready for it the truth but it's still you cry like you lost them that moment you know finding out it was always terrible you'd find out people would leave town and yeah and then you'd find out uh my husband bob and i were at an exhibit uh helping with the aids quilt and we were showing people a panel of the quilt we pulled up the next panel and it, it was a friend of <sighs> Fox that he knew oh. it was like oh wow hadn't heard from him okay well then yeah yeah. I, I uh, my stepbrother is Craig Lucas, who's a, a Tony Award winning playwright and also wrote the first feature movie about AIDS called Longtime Companion. Oh, wow. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so and that was based on his experience with his significant other who died of AIDS. And, and from that point on, he became that 50 percent of the energy in his life was working as a volunteer at AIDS hospices and so forth. All that to say. I look back every day. I watch these commercials on TV now for Big Tarvey and Devato and how they've buried this germ, this, this bacteria to the point where you can go undetectable now. And it's a part of the conversation. And it's right after an aspirin commercial on television. We really have made astonishing progress in that, in that one disease. Astounding. There are still new cases. There are still people being infected to the state, which is amazing because as we were telling people back in the 80s and 90s that condoms actually really work pretty darn well, and now we have a drug. Now we have multiple drugs that people can take and lower their viral load. Mm -hmm. So if you've got access to the drugs and you've got access to condoms, in theory, it should come to a giant screeching halt. Sadly, we still have people who don't access these drugs for whatever reason, for money or not, not lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So we still have new cases. And despite all the drugs, the cocktail, I mean, we now have people living with AIDS, living with HIV, 10, 20, 30 years. I got a couple of friends who are super long-term survivors who are in their 70s now, mm -hmm. and this is all possible. And yet we also still have people who are dying and dying young of it, lack of access to either availability of the drugs or the cash for the drugs. We still, unfortunately, are seeing cases in people dying. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. That's a great question. Does insurance cover those AIDS drugs it has to. i know a lot of people whose insurance does and then what if if you are someone you have no insurance you have no cash oh, yeah. what if you live in a very very small town say and you don't have access to a big city doctor or a major hospital like we do in la or new york mm -hmm. or san francisco what do you, you know and then heaven forbid people who are in other countries yeah no sure. i think i think well, there's still a lot to do and you're 
you're doing it, and that's just extraordinary. I want to talk for a moment about your your childhood. You had you had rather bohemian parents, and they were eccentric. They were not cruel, but they seemed to operate on one frequency that was not receptive to important additional signals. (laughs) Yes. So (laughs) I'm like. I just met my parents. Uh, <laughs> that was just a great My family's bonkers. They were show folk. No, I want to meet them. Oh. They were show folk. And they, were, they, were, <laughs> they met in the theater in Canada. Um, they met in the theater in Canada. They were wild actors in Vancouver in the 50s when they were doing, you know, Tennessee Williams. When it was like scandalous and, and you could get your theater shut down and like arrested for doing streetcar because of oh. censorship. Um, so they were scandalous back then. Uh, they moved, they were in New York. My father was on Broadway. My mother did voiceover. Uh, my mother was the voice of Casper the Friendly Ghost. Uh, <laughs> she was also um, Sweet Polly Purebred, Underdog's Girlfriend, uh, um, Gumby, and Davy of Davy and Goliath. Um, so yeah, so they were, she was voice, but they were working actors, stars, and we came, they came to California. Well, we lived at the Chateau Marmont. That's how like Hollywood we were. And they were, they were very much show folk, crazy people. And then both their kids wind up in show business. And I thought everyone was on television until I was like seven. <laughs> I thought people just took turns. <laughs> the Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame. I thought everybody got like a half an hour. I really, I thought that's, yeah. Right. Um, so I didn't know any different. And so, yes, it was very kooky. And um, I mean, on the upside, because they were all working actors, they did see me, me as a working actor, even very young. So I, you know, they didn't steal my money from being a child actor mm-hmm. because they went, oh, good, you got a job. So they like it was it was my money. I had a trust fund and I had a bank account and they they understood it to be work. I know there's some parents, if they're not in show business, they don't think it's work. So I had that going for me. But yes, they were absolutely off the wall and all the normal parental typical things. It's like, no, not, not, not. Being in show business, they didn't try to divert your attention from show business. They fully supported it from a young age. Exactly. I started auditioning as a baby, but I didn't get work till I was six. And they kind of considered me a late bloomer. Um, <laughs> I was like, she didn't get jobs. And then I, I, I had Batman's agent, Lou Sherrill, the great, late, great Lou Sherrill was Batman's agent. Um, I, I started working at, you know, at six and stuff. And then when I was about 11, I wasn't working much. I was six, seven years old. I did several things on TV. I worked quite a bit at eight. And when I was 10, I did a movie. And then I wasn't working. And they thought I'd work more after the movie. My father sat me down and said, got to be realistic. As you know, a lot of child actors work a lot when they're very young. And then 11, 12, puberty, they don't really work that much until they're adults or, or sometimes ever again. And, and you've certainly seen grown people who started on a show and then didn't work that much after. So to be realistic, you need to prepare yourself that you may never work again, that your career is over, and that I was washed up at 11. Um, Thanks for the info, Ted. <laughs> yeah, I took the stride because he was right. Yeah. I'd seen it. He was a manager. I'd see like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I knew it was true. And then I got Little House like a couple months later. So <laughs> I, I want to talk about the timing of Little House. We've discussed this with other people who were involved in shows from the 60s and 70s. Your show came on in 1974, which was one year before the end of the Vietnam War. And, And there was social turmoil in the country. And the show was nostalgic and people felt safe and grounded when they watched it. And the odd thing is, it's even more nostalgic now. Streaming channels are playing it and I think it probably serves as much of a purpose making people feel good about their past in a nostalgic way as it did back when it was on the air for the original broadcast. Boom, uh, you nailed it. What happened is, is when Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote the books and she initially just thought she was going to write Little House in the Big Woods and that would be it. Um, and then it was a monster hit and child lit. So when those books came out, Little House in the Prairie and Little House in the Big Woods and this is that was in the 1930s, the height of the Depression. She actually kind of saved HarperCollins, the publishing company, and really started the whole child lit thing as a profitable venue. So it was enormous. People went wild because here was a Depression. People had nothing, but they're reading about the Ingalls who had even less and how these people in the 1870s, when there actually was kind of a financial recession going on in the 1870s, were surviving and they loved this in the 30s. And then they were like, well, our parents used to make it all from scratch. We could do it. Then... 
what happens 1974 or what was it whip inflation now we had a recession you did meat was like a big thing you got gas on alternate days depending on your license plate number things were really rough in 1974 and here comes this show and there's all those scenes at the dinner table we're pausing a slate pencil no, it's two cents now for a slate pencil. I don't know if I can deal with this inflation. And, and everyone at home will go, <laughs> and they were and they were pulled in. They were like, yes, we get it. And so in the 70s, people leapt at it. So the timing, again, Great Depression for the books, the 70s recession for the show. And in the middle of the pandemic, people realized that we had an episode called Quarantine and an episode called Plague. We had anthrax wow. and typhus on Little House. And everyone started watching Little House and going, well, they were stuck in the house all winter. You know, maybe this is the way. And everyone started making sourdough bread. And Little House blew up in 2020. And in fact, we all got phone calls, all cast. We were all interviewed about the phenomenon. And I, I, of course, was doing live readings on Facebook as I was home and so was everyone else. So I said, hey, guys, I'm going to read the Little House in the Prairie book starting from page one, chapter one, book one, and we'll just see how long this takes. And I'll do this every day till I run out of books if the pandemic lets us out of the house, one or the other. And I read all nine of Laura's books, all the books about Laura, all the books inspired by Laura, Laura's Daughter Rose's books. And then I read some of um, Anna Green Gables and The Wizard of Oz and several other things. Then I read the books again. And <laughs> we're wow. still... And, um, People ate this. I did 600-some readings. I got a plaque from a senator in Sacramento for it. It was a, it was a big hit. People really loved it. They said, you know, I'm stuck home. Uh, some people said that, you know, they'd lost their jobs. They were sick. All kinds of terrible things were happening. They said, you know, but for an hour a day, you're kind of sitting there in a bonnet reading a book, and it, it's pretty good. Okay, so for idea. those of, for <clears throat> for those folks who have not gone to the original literature and have just watched the show what are some scandalous secrets that actually did happen on the prairie we did some things from the books in the show like um the episode town party country party where laura and i each have the parties and i you know and i get pushed in the pond or the thing um that's yeah that's a lot of that's in the book that's in the book and and there's some in country girls where i'm so horrible to them when they come to school that that's in the books but as michael landon once said there's just like a whole chapter on how to make an apple fritter i can't film this Mm. um (laughs) so we had to extrapolate and that's why really if you read the books little it's the one on the banks of plum creek Mm -hmm. i love that one that's the one the show's really about because they go to town and there's a teacher and a church there's school there's a store there's Nellie and willie and the olsons and it's like ah okay they're not just in the house we now can have a doctor and a teacher and a school we can have a, a life a town and people to interact with so they really made the show about on the banks of plum creek little house in the prairie was really the pilot with her in kansas because there's more to do but if you followed the books I mean, we would have been season two and it would be time for Laura to be grown up and marrying Almanzo. It would be, it would have gone too quickly. So they said, okay, this is our premise. What can we do with these characters and this town and these people in Laura's life for the next few years? Mm -hmm. And then when it's time, we'll, we'll we'll go back to the books every few months when we hit an episode that resonates. Right. Because the Wilders just kept, they kept moving. I mean, every book was, uh, you know, here, here we are and now here we are here. It, they spent more time in South Dakota. Yeah. In fact, um, the, the folks in Dismet, South Dakota, scandal, <laughs> not, they're a little miffed because it's near Walder Grove. They get all, they lived in Walder Grove for like a year, for like a year and a half. They were here the rest of the time. You know, they're very here. But no, the, show, the show's not about Dismet, South Dakota. There's a little bone of contention there. Um, <laughs> well, I let them own that. That's That's fine. There, there, there's all sorts of stuff. There's the book people and there's the show people and then there's Ooh. the history people because Laura kind of, she fudged timelines and things in the book too. She mm-hmm. like went, well, that story doesn't work. Let me just go over here. So there's stuff in the books that didn't really happen. Uh, so it gets very crazy. And there are fans that get into heated arguments over Laura's real life versus the books versus the show and who's more real and who did what that didn't happen. So I read the book about Laura Ingalls Wilder, and then there's a PBS documentary. Which I'm in. Everybody's in. I'm in. And you're in. Yeah. And it's crazy. Laura's actual daughter, Psycho. Rose is a trip. I yeah. want to. I want to do a movie about Rose. Yes. Don't you want to do a movie wow. about Rose? Wow. <laughs> Rose is 
fascinating. I've read a lot about Rosh. Very interesting person. Very interesting. And her writing is kind of weird. I read one of her books and then I like turned to the, the fans and the camera and said, should we continue this? Because this is it. Was really good. Um, she's no Laura. And that was it, the big thing at the time. Rose was the hot published author and got Laura into it. But yeah. then when it all panned out, Laura's stuff was more timeless. Less John Birchie. <laughs> Yeah, Rose's, Rose tried to be very arch and fashionable in the t- and wrote in the time period, and it doesn't hold up. Right. And also, you know, her politics were like really fascist and frightening. She was like uber. She invented being a libertarian, which which weird because they took all the farm benefits and everything. Yeah, like the Wilders were like super pissed off at at uh, FDR and everything because like rural people just felt like the government doesn't understand what our day to day is like it's totally took all manner of charity and welfare Laura actually was on the farm board when she lived in Missouri and writing articles and helping farmers access various government uh, packages and plans to help them farm Mm -hmm. better and survive so it's like oopsies I guess Rose decided not to go that way is there one uh, uh, show or one story arc of a couple of shows that you have found has resonated with the public more than others over your time. You know, a, a show that you get the most questions about or people say they were most affected by. Well, of course, you got your anything that's super duper Laura Nelly. I, I hear about from the Nelly fans. I always hear about the episode Bunny which is the one where I fall off the horse, fake paralysis, and then Laura pushes me down the hill in the wheelchair into the pond. Uh, it is referred to often as the down the, wheel, down the hill in the wheelchair episode. Um, I had to write a whole chapter about it in the book. People go mad for that. That is a fan favorite. That clip of me, there's someone has done a clip where they reverse it and then forward back and forth, like endlessly a loop of me going <laughs> down the hill in the wheelchair. It, it just never gets old. It's great. Um, so that one is huge because it's like kind of the ultimate Laura Nelly battle. And it's also um, like super, super satisfying revenge. Yeah. <laughs> you see me get another one that really freaks people out um, is the Sylvia. Sylvia part one and two is a very disturbing episode where a young girl who's like a sort of girlfriend ish of little Albert um, gets raped, brutally raped and becomes pregnant and then uh, when Albert is trying to make it all okay and says, we'll run away, we'll get married, no one will know, we'll raise the baby, everything will be okay. Um, her rapist decides that doesn't sound good because they're probably also going to talk to the sheriff when they get out of town um, and tracks her down and kills her. So she's murdered. Um, and it's really, really distressing episode all around. Everything in it is distressing. Her father's treatment of her, the, the then the rapist and the thing and the murder. It's like, what is even happening in the show? And it's 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 an interesting show because stuff like that happened in the 1800s, but it's a very upsetting show. And I just interviewed the actress, uh, Olivia, Olivia Barish, uh, who played Sylvia, and she's fascinating. And she is just had a, a weird career that she she went on, did a whole bunch of stuff, but she has this really weird fan base because she played the most tragic person ever on the entire show, guest star, and people are still talking about this episode all these years later. She, like, never has heard the end of this. Wow. Are you still close to any of your castmates? Oh, God, all of them. I actually was on a Zoom call, a chat. We were catching up on stuff with uh, both Dean Butler and Melissa Gilbert this morning. Uh, A lot of us do events together, uh, especially in May and April. We're all over the place. We do a lot of the fan events. The 50th anniversary is coming up. It's going to be gigantic. It's going to be a blowout. Yeah. All talking to each other because there's so many events going on. So we're like, well, what are you? Which ones are you doing? What do you want to do? Um, But I I have everybody on speed dial. Yeah. um, Baby Carrie, baby Grace, baby Rose, all the babies. Um, (laughs) Melissa, of course, Dean, uh, Miss Beetle and I are big buddies. Uh, So, yeah, it's it's we are all still speaking to each other. It's kind of crazy. Now, there is a lot of Little House literature in the genre and along with your book. And so a lot of folks have written because clearly there's a market for it. So how, do you read the other's books and, or do you just yes. simply flip yeah, to and your everyone pages? Everyone has written a book b- except for, um, I think, Fred the Goat and Ernestine <laughs> the Chicken. Everyone has written. 
Um, uh, Dean's book is finally going to be happening now. Dean Butler, uh, Salmanzo. Uh, there's a new one just coming out in August. Uh, the young woman, Wendy, who she and her twin sister played, uh, baby Grace on the show, Mm -hmm. grown up to be fabulous women. And this is her second book. She did a whole book of like affirmations, uh, a whole spiritual book about little house guide, like a prayer thing. It's lovely. She's got a second book now, um, finding red tail feathers. And it's really fascinating. It's a whole series of stories from her life, all kind of talking about like, well, wait, what does this mean? And do we miss out on the important things in life? She's really good. Anyway, so Baby Grace has her second book out. It's like, wait, what is happening? (laughs) Um, And that's coming out in August. It's very good. Um, But yeah, I've read, I think I've read everyone's. I highly recommend Charlotte Stewart, Miss Beatles book. Um, that one's kind of scandalous. It would yeah. be like the most scandalous book of the lot. <laughs> yeah, Miss Beetle. She's, you know, she's a sleeper cell. Um, you got to get in there. There's a lot to learn. But what yeah, I was yeah, wondering. Charlotte Stewart. Okay, Jim Morrison. What can I say? Two words. Jim Morrison. Really? Seriously. Get Miss oh, Beetle's wow. book. Miss Beetle's book. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So did you read Melissa Sue Anderson's book? And did you learn did more you? about her childhood and what was sort of informing her decisions, her isolation uh, on the set? To me, it felt like her mother was saying, these girls are not your friends. This is a competition. This is real company. I mean, if you take a bunch of tween girls and shove them in a soundstage and lock them in there for a few years, you're going to have trouble. Uh, and that's the thing. The parents put enormous pressure on all of us, had weird pressure for managers and agents and parents. I, I even talk about in the book that one where Melissa got all of us girls into the dressing room because somebody's mom was spreading rumors and how we like formed a coalition against the stage. That parents. scene is hilarious. Bonkers. I love how Melissa Gilbert is just like the take charge. Like she's probably like, you know, this big and she's like, all right, ladies, here's what's going down as like your president of sag now (laughs) she was kind of always like that and so yeah so it's bound to be difficult and i absolutely think that yeah i think her mom told her that melissa and i were juvenile delinquents or something um it's just weird but yeah i read her book she really i mean she had said publicly she didn't really want to write a book and she was very private person so she starts out you start reading the book and you go ha ha she's going to tell us yes we're going to know and then she's like yeah i'm not gonna and that's all I'm going to tell you. Now I'm going to discuss the show. Mm-hmm. And and does not reveal a lot about herself. She mm-hmm. really doesn't. Um, which is unfortunate because she has a lovely husband and two grown-up children and there's a bunch of really interesting things in her life. But she's like... Melissa Gilbert has a second book called Modern Prairie. I also highly recommend. Her first book was classic memoir with various scandals. The second one, Modern Prairie, is really interesting because it starts out, it's like, hey, I'm raising chickens in the Catskills. What? Okay. And how I survived the pandemic. It's kind of wacky. But then you read it and she really talks about embracing her age and where she is now and going balancing my career and my career where it is at now and then also getting away from it all and raising chickens. And it's all, it's, it's really actually, Modern Prairie is really interesting. I want to talk about your uh, transition after a period of time to being a stand-up. There are lots of people who get a reputation in, in in movies or television, and then as a vanity project decide, well, I'm going to cash in on my name and become a stand-up. But you are a genuinely hysterical person and a wonderful comic, uh, really having nothing to do with your previous, you know, um, um, uh, life on on television, but talk about transitioning. I, I the reason I'm asking this question is I, I know people like Saget, Bob Saget, and you knew him well, um, uh, who spent all of their energy on stage trying to prove to the American people that he was not the character of the father on Full House, and that's why he works so blue and edgy. And another person was. Uh, exactly like that Skip Stevenson from Real People did it. He did exactly very funny comic, but man, uh, people were coming to his shows expecting you know the scrub, the middle American guy, and they're running for the exits. So it's a, it's an interesting. All that to say, it's an interesting thing to have people have a predisposition toward you because of your your roles on television, and then come and believe you as a really funny stand up comic. Was there was there a getting used to period there for you? Well, I I think I would have been a stand-up comic if I'd never been on TV. I think mm. that's who I kind of am. I started doing stand-up at 15, hanging out at the Comedy Store and the Improv and all those places. And da, 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 da. I remember 
John's Place and all those clubs, and doing a regular stand-up set. And I would vague, I would bear, I would mention Little House early at the beginning, but I just talked about being a teenager and in being in Hollywood and all these kind of things. And but in 2002, I started my one-woman show, which is the best thing I ever did. And it was really because a comedian friend of mine even said, you know, your show's great, but the stories you tell in the bar afterwards are even funnier. <laughs> um, so it's like, okay, alter stories. We do alter stories and from my life. We do a question-answer segment. And man, did that thing kick ass. Um, and still doing it, adding to it. I do different things. I add video. I tell new stories. We do new stuff. And then we have the French versions. But... When I started doing ultra stories, and it's interesting working blue, I first started it in New York. And um, it was, I would say it was R, maybe N- NC-17-ish. <laughs> um, um, there's people much dirtier, but I said some things. I had friends come to go, I thought you were going to be much dirtier than that. Okay, that wasn't so bad. Like, okay. Um, <laughs> but the funny thing is, despite having been a little house in the prairie, because I was Nellie Olson, <laughs> People kind of expected me to be awful and terrible and say really bad things. So, yeah, they were pretty really shocked. That's yeah, it's not the same as Danny Tanner. Uh, you know, she was. <laughs> That's right. true. Yeah, she was the villain. Yeah. If if Melissa Gilbert or Melissa Sue Anderson took up stand up, they would have a very interesting <laughs> challenge. They would expect them. Yeah. Melissa Gilbert could totally do um, to be a bit cleaner. Me, they kind of go, well, it's Nellie Olson. I'm. It's going to be savage. What do we expect? <laughs> um, so I could sort of do no wrong, which is kind of fun. Um, and yeah, I talked about all sorts of crazy things, and it's, many of them are in the. I did some people do the book and then the show. I did the show then the book, which mm-hmm. is really weird. Um, and then the book has more stuff of my life in it, and the show has the funny parts um and i add things i have video and stuff i talk about my horrendous appearance on fantasy island when i was a hooker on fantasy island <laughs> and i have i have a little video clip montage where i like and this is how bad it actually was i'm not even making this up um so it's a lot of it is about growing up in show business and the insanity of that but yeah i have hilarious completely true stories and some of them are naughty and um, but they 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 figure well it is called Confessions of a Prairie Bitch so we know it's at least PG thirteen we're kind of mm. getting the picture here. Um, you do a lot of fringe festivals. Expr- explain yeah, to people yeah, what I fringe did, festivals shows are. Where I did them in the daytime and I said okay I'll do like the PG one the mild one for the afternoon show. But um, generally I'm at I'm you know um, the uh, Lori Beachman Theater in New York and then the Rochester Fringe Festival on the thirtieth of September and I've done the, the, these kind of festivals and yes it's pretty wild there and the Q and A is my favorite part's the Q and A the audience I have cards I give them cards that say ask Allison anything and they can <laughs> and they feel freed because they're writing it down they're not raising their hand they, they don't you know we don't know who asked this terrible question and I I read them off and answer them which is great fun. Uh, and it's really, it's really good. And then I incorporate the kind of the Nelly thing at the end. We have a thing where I do come out in the wheelchair with the wig and <laughs> scream their heads off. Um, it's really fun. People like it. There's a little audience participation. It's fun. You do a really excellent job in your book of describing the 360 personalities of the actors, Michael Landon, uh, uh, Catherine McGregor, who plays, you know, Mrs. Olsen. You really do a, a great job. And it's... It, feels to me like you're someone that just embraces the whole person, like never expecting perfection. But like, this is what makes folks interesting. They were were real people. They were three dimensional. They were real humans. You know, that's the thing. They weren't one thing. And that was was fascinating about the people we had in Little House. They could be someone go, well, this is a really sweet, nice person. Wow. Oh, wow. They're actually crazy. Oh, but they're really (laughs) (laughs) all these things at once. And. Um, Catherine was so brilliant because people were so scared of her. She was so Mrs. Olsen. And she was really terribly sweet. I mean, we, the one event I, we did, I talked about where the children were so afraid. We, the mistake we made of going in costume and children were so afraid of her. The little tiny children cried and ran away. And she was <laughs> devastated. She's like, I made your children cry. <laughs> um, she was the sweetest person, took in stray people and animals, but was also wonderfully just bonkers, just out there. You can't envision anyone else having played her it, it's so perfect it's so camp it's the right note of camp you know Perfect. Yeah. yeah and also michael landon the way that you describe him i mean he was just so revered but he was a complicated guy 
he was more interesting than Charles Ingalls, really. I mean, that's the thing. Some of the people read my book, they're like, oh, he's, I thought he was going to be boring. Wait, he's like exciting? We didn't know. <laughs> and, and, and that was the thing. I mean, it was the 70s in Hollywood. So, yes, everyone was smoking and drinking and carrying on. It was a, I mean, I laugh. I think about on sets now. I mean, God, even the food, what you have vegan and gluten-free options. You know, we had, <laughs> you want donuts, you want cream-filled, or you want bear claws. That's it. These are your choices. <laughs> and coffee. That's that's it. No, there's no decaf. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so he was very basic things for the 70s. So he was wild and he liked fast cars and fast women and and, and wild turkey and, and marbles. But he also was really protective of the children on the set mm-hmm. and very respectful of us as actors and as young performers. And he was also really, really hyper concerned about the quality of the show at all times. Every, he is just he he oversaw everything. He had to approve like every single thing. Well, I don't like no, no, no costumes. I don't like it. Get you know. He want the quality of the show and how it, final product and how people received it was just gigantically important to him. He was never phoning it in. But then he was also you know lived in Malibu and was really worried about his hair <laughs> all at the same time. Yeah, but no, he, yeah. he, he was time. responsible for some television that really held the hearts of Americans gently in his hands, like Highway to Heaven and Little House on the Prairie and all those things that meant so much to people. And he knew that. I mean, that's one of the things when they talk about blowing up the sets in the final episode, which really upset a lot of people. But one of the reasons he did that, he even said, I can't leave them there. He says, first of all, I don't own the land. They're, they're going to shoot other things there. It's a working film set. You've got to take your things and go. You've got to clean up your mess. And how do I end the show? And I can't leave like the little house there. They'll use it for other things. It could be a sex comedy. It could be a slasher murder flick. It could be anything. He said they could be doing Porky's Revenge or some kind of murder thing on the Little House. He said, I can't pay for everyone's therapy. If if they see their Little House of their Uh childhood used in this other way, so out it goes. And so he said, I'm not leaving anything there. I'm not, they don't want to keep me to leave it there. And I'm sure, sure as hell not leaving it for them to make other stuff with. And people see those buildings from their childhood being used, not doing it. Mm-hmm. Are you wow. are you up for a little round of L-Hop trivia? Yeah, always. Okay. <laughs> Question number, anyone can play. This is great. Okay. Question one, which of these Oscar winners did not make an appearance on Little House? Ernest Borgnine, Patricia Neal, Burl Ives, Red Buttons? Jeff Bridges, Louis Gossett Jr., Sean Penn. Burl Ives? I'm sorry, that is an incorrect answer. Burl Ives, according to IMDb, was on Little House. It was Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges did. Jeff Bridges was not. But everyone else, Sean Penn sure was. Sean Penn. Now, was Brad Pitt, I was reading somewhere that, that Brad Pitt was on Little House? I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Also, how old would he have been? Yeah, I don't. A baby? Was he yeah. little Carrie? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Number two. When the Ingalls family was shown eating stew together, what had the prop master placed on their plates? The classic. Pretty much every TV show, if you were eating unnamed stew. Good old Dinty Moore beef stew. That is a correct <laughs> answer. Dinty Moore beef the stew. Safe, the safety go-to of every prop man everywhere for <laughs> stew on a tin plate. It looks like food. Here we go. <laughs> Where did the Olsen family get their fine china? Um, possibly online or any department store near you, as it was the fabulous blue willow pattern, which was insanely popular in the 1870s when Laura's around, had a comeback in the 50s and conveniently had a giant comeback in the 70s so they could go down to the department store and grab a box. It's back again, and you can totally go online and buy the Blue Willow China, and your dinner table can look just like the Olsen's tonight (laughs) if you want to. Yes, they got it from Broadway Department Store. Number four, what would Michael Landon say to the children, to the child actress, to get them to cry? Oh, this, and it works. It was like, I mean, it's kind of terrible, but it worked, and it could have been worse things. Um, And I actually did it to an actress, Pamela Bob, when I was doing that thing, Living on Prayer. I pulled it on her, and she's like, God, I hate you. And she started crying. Um, his big thing was telling people how much he loved them. 
He would pull Melissa up. He did it to Matt. Do you know how much I love you? And it's pretty hard not to cry when someone like Michael, who you adore, and then says that to you. I did this. Uh, Pamela Bob did this show. It's a little miniseries it's called Living on a Prairie. It's very funny. Go look it up. And I, I play the therapist. It, she plays a woman who is so obsessed with Little House in the Prairie. Her life has come to a standstill. <laughs> and I'm her therapist. Um, and at one point, right as we're going to film, because she's crying and crying, it's all terrible. And so she's getting all worked up. And I just went, Michael Landon would be so proud of you right now. Like, oh. <laughs> Don't do that to me. What are you doing? <laughs> That's beautiful. Okay, question number five. How did Allison achieve Nellie's head of curls? Uh, um the first couple of months, um, they said, no, you're supposed to be in curlers. I said, wait, what? Oh, yeah, ringlets. So I slept in curlers. They were the little pink foam kind, and we sprayed with this <laughs> Pantene set and spray. I don't recommend this. And I slept in curlers at 12, coming at 4 in the morning. Mm. Um, and they did my hair, and it was uh, a nightmare. And then... They said, this is not working because even with all that, it kept coming down um, and they had the big hot curling irons. So we did about six months and get a wick, which looked gorgeous, stayed curled even in humidity and was the most uncomfortable thing I have ever worn in my life. It was awful. So there was a giant comb that dug into the top of your forehead, right? Where you're right, because it's got to stay on. I mean, wig, wigs, you know, they put all these pins in, spat it up. But if you're running around and going down hills in wheelchairs and falling <laughs> over and running around, the, the giant, mouth, which is why I was like surprised for seven years. What Netflix series star became a regular on Little House at the age of 11? Oh, is that uh, Mr. Bateman? Yes, Jason Bateman. Yes, indeed. And I think that was his first part. Oh, I think so. I think so. Yeah. It was a wee thing. It was a wee little thing. Yes, Fritzy. No, I just want to do, uh, I mean, you give so much of your time and talent to uh, making other people's lives better. And you were one of the founders of the National Association to Protect Children. Talk about what that is and what drove you to that line of work. Well, um, this group of people uh, back east, they, they got together and it was like, oh God, there was like some lawyers, some psychologists, some uh, political people, uh, an attorney general. They were all people who'd worked in different facets of fighting child abuse. And what they saw was they would have someone uh, and they managed, they got arrested, they got, they went to court, the child was willing to testify, they got the guy convicted, convicted on all counts, and then he would serve no jail time whatsoever and go home with the victim. It's like, wait, what just happened? And what they realized, there were so many loopholes and gaps in the law that in many states there was an exception if someone molested their own child. Like a, a crime against a child that might get you a sexual abuse of a child, might get you 20 years in some state. But if it was your own child or a niece or a nephew and you're related to, you could opt to plead guilty and receive zero jail time, even get the record expunged. Like nothing. Deferred entry of judgment. And uh, then be free to go. And then, of course, since it was your own kid, they moved back with you. Yeah, bad. Um, wow. And we found out about this. And so they said, you know, we have to do something about this. So a group was formed, uh, people out of North Carolina originally, and uh, they started working on this politically and indeed got laws changed in North Carolina, a couple states. And I got on board about time said, we're thinking of doing California, but that might be too much. I'm like, let's try it. Um, so um, we did. And so um, I wound up becoming president of the board of directors. And um, we did. We changed laws in California, New York, Illinois, um, Arkansas, all over the country. And then on the federal level, we saw to it that things like the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, the police groups, the actual ICAC teams who find the people trading child pornography and child trafficking, that they got appropriate funding that they weren't really getting and more manpower and software. Um, did a lot of stuff. We're doing all kinds of stuff now, even about you know children's education and things, because so many children now are getting their education online and that's been very difficult for a lot of people um but yes it's an interesting group we've accomplished some amazing stuff and really kind of attacking the problem from angles that maybe other people hadn't attacked it from that's really helped a lot of people and um when i was actually asked i know that the um, executive director he didn't know he knew he had a list and um didn't know why I was on the list. And then I said, well, look, if this, you know, we do this, obviously it's going to go public and I'm not going to lie. I haven't gone public about having been sexually abused as a child, but I will for this. And he's like, okay, yikes. All right. Are you sure? And then 
as a result of our fight in California to change the law, I wound up going on uh, Larry King, Larry King Live, and talking about it. And it had quite the effect. And then I've talked about it, of course, at length in the book and how I survived that and the massive therapy and things that I've gone through to get where I am today and how much the activism and helping other people has helped. Well, one of the things that you talk about in your book was that when you when you show up for therapy, you're you're still in your 20s. And the therapist was impressed because most people take these secrets to their graves. Some people will get help in their 40s. You recognized as soon as the distraction of Little House was over, you just were hit over the head with what had happened to you as a child, what you had endured. You were terrorized as a child. And you said, I'm going to heal. I'm going I'm going to be happy. And you you did the work. So talk about that for a moment. Yeah. And, and she did. She said, you know, people come in, they're like in their 40s or older before if they ever get here and you're you're what 21 wait what what's happening here 21 year olds don't just roll up into the therapist's office with the checkbook and say well i'm ready to start now and like go find a therapist i mean 21 year olds get sent to therapy 21 year olds don't phone around and go hi i hear you're really good at this i'd, I'd like to make an appointment so this doesn't happen and and they usually don't come in and even if they do come in if they have physical abuse sexual abuse is the last thing they talk about they'll spend multiple sessions going well i don't know it's like this i don't know and then finally she's like you like i came in the door and said okay here's what's happened here's what's going on and here's why i feel terrible and this and this and then she's like people don't do this and what a nice refreshing start and this should probably go a lot faster because you're willing to talk um <laughs> and i thought well I, you know, I was terrible. I said, well, I'm paying for it. I feel like I should just sort of get it out. You know, my, 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 I, it seems terrible. It's At how much prices. an hour? Yeah, I'm <laughs> going to tell you what's the matter. Well, I'm going to sit here and not tell you what's wrong. I'm paying what? Um, so I, I don't know how people don't tell their therapist what's really going on with them. It's how much an hour and you're going to lie? <laughs> but, uh, you you, you talked about the internet uh, safety thing. I, I'm interested in your opinion whether you think tech should police themselves or this is something government should be doing. They need someone else. I mean, there is some. I mean, I don't think the self policing thing's gone that no. well. Um, and that's one of the things that protect is talking to people about like looking at like, okay, can you have like a, maybe a, you know, an NGO, a non-governmental agency of some kind that are actually experts in this and have people involved who aren't necessarily hoping to just make it go away. So the company stays in business, but are actually looking to see that people are being protected. Do they need to call in some kind of expert actually knows what they're doing as opposed to just hoping that they don't. And, and then it's also huge. It's as difficult for them to self-police as we've seen on Facebook and many of the other things. There's videos will pop up. People will put up videos. People have put up videos of people being killed. People will put up child sexual abuse material. They'll put up murder videos and with such speed that even though there's scores of people and algorithms trying to take them down, the next one's up before you've even mm -hmm. begun. Right. And it is an enormous problem that requires 24-hour, seven-day-a-week vigilance. Um, so they have to really have entire departments dedicated to that, and they have to have experts in the field assisting them in some way, whether they be governmental or trained outside persons, because it's far more horrible and more complicated than something the average person would be able to do. I'm, I, I know... I recognize this is not your responsibility, but do you have any thoughts about what made your brother so unhappy and dangerous? I don't know. I don't know because um, he was vague and talkative and contradictory about so many things in his life. I don't know. Um, I know he obviously had issues with alcohol, drugs, all sorts of things going on. Um, it's hard to say, and it's hard to say with all people like this who do terrible things to other people. Sometimes, you know, they find people who've done this who are either child sexual abusers or rapists or spousal abusers, and they find that indeed, indeed, they have an actual diagnosable mental condition. Um, they, you know, some people had brain tumors. Um, and then there's cases where there's not, there's, there's not a specific di diagnosable actual mental illness involved. Uh, in some cases, it's like people will say, well, it's a personality disorder of some kind. 
that allows them to be willing to hurt. Or it's a pre-established pattern from earlier in their life, and they're you know going back several generations. Right. Yeah, it's it's a multitude of things, and it is different. And um, and obviously, there's there you know there's people in jail who uh, the doctor said, well, there's nothing technically wrong with him except that he does this. Uh, so it's it's hard to say. Absolutely, there are people who are mentally ill, and then there are people who it's just that is how they are wired. But if we if we were able to intervene when people, you know, somebody that is sexually attracted to children is never going to have a healthy relationship because children do not remain children. And also it's extremely damaging <laughs> to introduce children to sexual behaviors. So they're going to be desperately unhappy too. And if we could at 10 or 12 see some signs, are there any groups that are at least working on what causes someone oh, to be? Yeah, there's there's all kinds of I mean, years ago, a friend of mine and he's a doctor and he had he had a whole facility. And he said, you no, know, it was like a lockdown thing for months. People who had been intercepted in the system who were quite young, who were still in their teens, who were teenage offenders or younger, that uh, absolutely an intensive therapy program. And it wasn't, you know, outpatient and it wasn't just drop by when you feel like it uh, and that he'd had some success in indeed changing that behavior. Uh, before, as they say, someone gets, as you would say, calcified at, you know, 30 or 40. And that's mm -hmm. the problem is, is so many programs where they say, well, we're going to have this person who's 40, 50 years old and has been doing this to people for this long. And we're just going to have them pop in once a week. And it's mm -hmm. like, mm, probably not going to work. Mm -hmm. No. Um, but yeah, anything that you can nip in the bud young and obviously reduce the number of children who are abused that's there you're going to reduce drug abuse suicide mental illness and all manner of societal problems because when you talk to people you've even seen on shows like intervention you talk to people who are in the hospital for drugs or alcohol what percentage of them were abused as children usually sexually you talk to people who are in prison you talk to people who are homeless what is the percentage of them that are abused as children, you see how high it is and how 100%. often that's a precipitating mm -hmm. incident. I, I would go so far as to say all of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, it, you know, what's interesting is, you know, factor. what you talk about near the end of your book is that in, in the broken places, we can get stronger or we can break other people. And you, you're just born to be strong. So, you know, you're, and you're using that gift to help others get strong. I, I you know, I, I, I try. It's, I'm in a position, because people know who I am because of the thing with the ringlets and the whatnot and the, <laughs> the bonnets thing, and yeah, the wheelchair, yeah. that they're, they're willing. It's, I, I discovered this when I was speaking to people about HIV and AIDS. There, there were places that were a little skittish about having someone come in and talk about AIDS. And they went, oh, oh, from Little House in the Prayer. Well, all right then why that <laughs> difference. I didn't, really don't know. I was like, you, you, want, you want to talk to me, not your doctor. All right, fine. But <laughs> it allowed me to go places and speak to people that I would not have been allowed to go to or speak to without. And so being given that kind of a gift, that sort of platform to be able to use that for good. And then indeed my own experience, well, I could wallow in my own misery or I could see what I could do to use this in some way to help other people. Mm -hmm. I, I made a documentary about the cow sills and their childhood was not unlike yours. Yes. And uh, I had just finished your book this morning when I read this comment on my YouTube page, which features a lot of extra footage. DA writes, I like the fact that Paul calls it the way it was, good or bad. This was his reality. He reminds me of myself and the family I grew up in. Dads were identical. I also used to go to school and beat the hell out of the bullies that picked on the weak. And I also loved doing this. Why? Because we had to look at all the injustices that were being done to us at home. And we needed an outlet, something to balance the universe. This is how we did it. You make, uh, And you make the point in your book that, you know, some folks use their rage for good and some become monstrous. And I think, you know, we can all make a better conscious effort, you know, to take our pain and to turn it around and to use that, whatever that energy is, to make somebody else feel better. Oh, 
Yes, we all have pain. We all have pain. We all have something. Maybe, okay, you people say, well, I wasn't abused as a kid. Thank God they have that. No, not everyone was abused as a child. Not everyone had their friends all die of AIDS. Not everyone had XYZ. Not everyone's divorced. Not everyone got beaten. Not everyone's been abandoned. But everybody has something. Everyone has something to whatever degree. And you can, it's not what bad thing happened to you. It's what you chose to do with it. Because everybody had something mm -hmm. in their life, whatever degree. I mean, you can have a suffering contest, but it's everyone had something that probably they really rather had not happened. So what do you do with that? What do you do with it? Do you mm -hmm. find a way to use that for something? Absolutely. And that, and for you, that was the secret to happiness. And I, and I love that. I just I just love it. Anything more, Fritz? No, I'm just. You're such an entertaining person and talented, <laughs> and I'm great grateful to have a chance to talk to you in person. So you talked about going back to Rochester, the Fringe Festival. Where where is your next one person show performance? Oh my God! Uh, supposed to be Lori Beachman on I think the 28th of September, and then Rochester Fringe is the 30th of September, and then I leave literally the next day for France, where I have six shows lined up in French. Uh, new show. Um, Nelly Olsen on Flamme Les Années 80. It's wow. about Nelly I pay a hundred dollars to see that. In French, and it's a she does the show. In Fly into France, and the shows—it's not a hundred dollars. It's cheap. To Are get your in. gigs listed friend. on your website? Yes, yes. If you go to uh, bonnetheads.com, bonnetheads.com, <laughs> and uh, we put up the Nelly newsletter every month, and you can get the Nelly newsletter, and we put up things that are happening. And there is a French website. If you uh, just Google Alison Arngram France, and the Alison Arngram uh, France website will give you all the dates and locations for the French shows. If you happen to be over there in October, um, I'm also doing all these Kooky Prairie events. We're going a bunch of us from the show. We're going to Oklahoma in uh september we're going i'm going to chicago august 19th then there's a thing in august in kentucky with a bunch of little house people and um where am i next uh, but yes i'm ever i'm going to kentucky i'm going to oklahoma i'm going to chicago uh oh i'm going to orlando fanboy orlando first weekend of september and both karen grassley and melissa gilbert are going to be there yikes it's going to be quite the lineup um so i'm, I'm everywhere i'm absolutely everywhere um and you can find me yeah Oh, wonderful. Okay, here come our closing credits. You're going to find everything that Allison talked about in our show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, or we are at MediaPathPod. And on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. And you can write to us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating and up. Apple Podcast. We will be forever grateful. And you can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Allison Arngrim. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman and Allison Arngrim. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. That's my pressure off a hill and down she goes. Oh man, that description of like you, those close ups they had to get of you in the chair. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs>